0: For more information, visit www.novic.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hello,
1: everybody, and welcome to the Novic Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Alexandra Takei, and this is the interview and insight segment. Today, we're taking a sojourn down memory lane to the origination of video games, board games. Tabletop has been experiencing a renaissance of sorts, partly spurred by the pandemic Mass media shows like Queen's Gambit, and of course, Critical Role, a TV web series that broadcasts on Twitch and YouTube starring professional voice actors playing Dungeons & Dragons. There have been financial transactions of note in the board game space. In December of 2021, Embracer led a strategic acquisition of Asmodee for $3 billion, a lead board gaming group that's responsible for a portfolio of over 970 games, many of which you guys in the audience have probably played, such as Catan, Pandemic, and Exploding Kittens. There are strategic questions for games that start digital, like Wordle and Witcher, that have gotten or are in the process of getting physical counterparts. And so today we're going to be talking about board games, the similarities in design to video games, business models and distribution strategies in board games, and the broader strategy of franchising in AAA. In order to do so, I've brought on a longtime friend and mentor, Jane Chung Hoffaker, the now current CEO and co-founder of Incredible Dream, and formerly an Emmy-winning EVP, of League of Legends' Arcane series. Welcome to the pod, Jane.
2: Hi Alex, thanks for having me. Woo.
1: And um uh, how was the rest of your GDC? I know that we we caught up and and got some lunch. Uh, did you uh, go to any interesting talks or sort of what was your GDC debrief?
2: It was it was kind of weird for me cuz like I don't think I actually spent much time at the convention itself. It was just a lot of meetings outside of it, um, a lot of dinners, repeat breakfasts and stuff like that. Um but it was it was just really fun and man the weather was crazy I think like oh my god it was, yeah <laughs> like seeing trees fall on cars and like our building was shaking and rattling like a like ship or something it was crazy
1: it was so bad on the way to my um, GDC panel I was walking and my hat blew off my umbrella turned inside out I showed up to the panel with like my hair like all mis- misconstrued um, it was a wild weather um, just to say the least so uh, and also cold very cold, cold and
2: wet. And yeah, yeah. probably the worst weather I've seen at a convention, but yeah.
1: <laughs> but a ton of people, but there's a lot of great people and a great turnout. So um, I it was my first GDC. So I, I had, I had a ton of fun.
2: Yeah. Um, but you know, what was not fun was like you come home and then all of a sudden all those like COVID like little bleeps oh, and notifications. It was like, oh, 100%. Do do I got this? like
1: a bunch of texts <laughs> that were like, we have tested positive for COVID. um. So, but I've already had it. So I think, yeah. uh, I stayed protected, didn't, didn't get it again. So at least there was that. Um, but Jane, so I, I know a lot about you and your history in video games, but, um, I was wondering if maybe you could share a summary of your story and, and how you came to found incredible dream studios.
2: Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, I spent, uh, most of my career was built up in the video game industry um, my early, early career was actually in finance, uh, where I was a private equity analyst, uh, working in, in that field. And then early life crisis moved over into video games. Cause it was uh, gaming in general was always my lifelong passion. And I just never thought of doing it when I was younger. And so I just had an aha moment and went in, um, worked as an indie game designer for a short bit, and then eventually made my way over to Activision, uh, where I worked on the guitar hero franchise and stuff like that and shipped way too many of them. Uh, eventually that (laughs) franchise closed down and then I was moved over to Skylanders. Um, and then from Skylanders, I just really wanted, you know, it was, it was my moment really to like figure out what I wanted to do. And then I, I ended up joining a scrappy startup, which turned out to be Riot Games, lucky me. Um, and I was at Riot for like nine years and, uh, it was a crazy ride. Like first half of that career was really like building out the global footprint for, for League of Legends and Riot Games, helping building out local offices and, um, you know, helping to bring at League of Legends to uh, different markets like Korea and Turkey, Turkey and Brazil, um, and then the latter half, I got to build up Riot's animation, and an animated entertainment business. Uh, don't ask me how or why. Like, you know, I explain the story, and they just like, "I'm like, man, people must think I'm insane." But like, you know, that's kind of a growth stage startup, right? You end up wearing a lot of different hats. Um, but yeah, I had that opportunity. Produced uh, Arcane. Um, and then around then was just sort of like, you know, my moment to think through like, what do I want to do next? And just sort of, um, you know, me too was happening in the background. And I decided then that I really wanted to start my own game studio. Um, and then, you know, that kind of kicked off my journey, kind of searching, like, how, how do I do this? Uh, Where do I find co-founders? What kind of studio it is? Um, and then I ended up meeting my co-founders who are already looking in board games. Um, and I thought that was so interesting, um, and I fell in love with the industry, and here I am. Awesome.
1: Um, so I guess, like, I'm going to, I mean, at least, like, first ask, it sounds like your background is, and this is maybe a good segue into sort of what, what makes a good board game, but it sounds like your background is obviously, you said, Guitar Heroes, Skylanders, League of Legends. Those are all pretty, like, at least in, in our view of the world, AAA, PC, premium titles. What made you starting to get passionate about board games and tabletop coming from the video game, digital video game space?
2: Yeah. I mean, part of this was born out of the pandemic, like so many things, right? Like, you know, I think a, a year into it, I was feeling what everybody else was feeling. You, you know, you're kind of marathoning between that 10th cup of coffee and then that, that 4 p.m. glass of wine. And, you know, just sort of like, you know, it, you spent during the pandemic. It was a weird moment. You, I, I, found myself spending so much time on screens, like between endless Zoom calls, mm. uh, and then like going, like trying to relax for my own entertainment, all that stuff. Um, you know, our family. We, we, we ended up gravitating towards, uh, you know, learning and trying D for the first time, and then like going back into our board game collection and even expanding it. Uh, so for me, that the key interest was really like, hey, this is something that's different. It's um, physical. It's, you know, for me, something like in my personal life, I've been looking for and kind of fills a, a unique spot in my life. And I see, and I just, I also felt like from a culture perspective, like as people were hopefully emerging from the pandemic and lockdowns, um, I just felt like there was this big demand for meeting back in person, right? Mm. Like, I don't know if you remember, but like back then, like there were um, just news stories about people just getting arrested, uh, losing their electricity bill, because uh, during the lockdowns, they would still have house parties. And that's how badly people wanted to connect back together again, is that they would risk, you know, get, breaking the law in order to meet back in person. So I felt like there was a real trend there. And mm-hmm. and um and then, you know, there were other factors too, like the rise in mental health issues, uh, especially among Gen Zers that like felt like, you know, I think part of that was driven by living so digitally. Uh, and then last but not least, just from like, you know, putting on the business hat, it, like, I do think um, uh, there's fundamentals about the board game industry that really, um, I thought were interesting from a business perspective in terms of, because originally you have to think back, I was looking to build my own game studio and naturally I was thinking video games cause that was more my bread and butter for the last decade. Uh, when I saw board games, it's so different. It's all physical print. Uh, the, you know, the, the types of hires that you make are slightly different. You don't actually need a software engineering team cause there's no software really, Um, And so there are a lot of differences like that and distribution fulfillment is its own thing. Uh, But because of these differences, like you can actually build um, and ship a board game so much faster Mm -hmm. uh, with, and with less capital because, you know, building infrastructure and all that stuff is is capital and time intensive. Um, Which to me, because my whole interest is in building and working with these uh, big like gaming IPs and extending them. uh, I saw these as huge advantages for what I was trying to do in terms of, I could start incubating fan communities faster, right? I can get my product out there. I could start testing, doing product market fit tests with new IPs faster, um, getting feedback from communities and just hopefully growing from there. Got
1: it. Wow, that was a great summary of um, board games versus video game development. Actually, one (laughs) of my questions later on was sort of what's easier about board games versus making video games and what's harder. Um, And so you sort of touched on a lot of those points of of different types of employee structures um, time to market uh, etc and so I think yeah. though I, I want I kind of want to, to to rewind and talk about you know we a lot of video games start and originate in the paper prototyping phase uh, we learned at Ben Brode's GDC talk, for example, which I attended and was so awesome. Um, Marvel Snap spent a solid months, um, solid couple months in paper prototype only, and mm. now obviously that's already natively a TCG, and so it's synchronistic with being tabletop in the first place. But you know, video game designers probably start in paper prototype all, all the time. I know that we had briefly touched upon this when we when we got lunch, but. What, what, what's got to happen after you do a paper prototype to turn that formally into a board game? Because I think in the video game world, maybe like that would be your starting point. Whereas in board games, you're already on the tabletop no matter what.
2: Yeah, I think uh, that's really insightful. Um, with with board games, what would happen after that sort of initial paper prototyping phase? Um, it Like the business models are very different, uh, which uh, overly obvious statement there, but, um, so with board games, you're, you're dealing with print runs and then you're dealing with uh, distribution, hopefully retail distribution, um, and, uh, you know, inventory risk, all these things like f- that physical products have that you don't deal with, with, with digital video games. Um, And, you know, it's a trade-off, right? Because, like, uh, you know, part of of all this calculus for me, too, is, like, I was staring at, like, Joe Tung raised a bunch for his firm, you know, and he was in LA hiring. Slim just started Raid Base. He was in LA hiring. And then we're all still competing potentially with Riot and, and Activision, all these other major companies in LA for the exact same, like, software engineering talent. Like, you know, uh, I think when you're doing digital games, you have to really think about those things and just sort of that delivery mechanism and your first party pl- platforms and stuff like that. Uh, for board games, um, so because you're thinking about a physical product, um, you know, you have to, you know, I think after you develop the paper prototype, it's a lot of testing, so playtesting. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually play tested a bunch digitally, so we used um, a tool called Tabletopia. Initially, we used TTS, but we Tabletop Simulator, but we moved over to Tabletopia. Um, So we did a lot of testing digitally, which I don't know, maybe your listeners might find ironic. Um, Yeah, I was
1: about um, to say, I find it it (laughs) ironic.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was also pandemic time. So it's like, you know, trying Mm -hmm. to get people to meet in person to playtest was like not happening. Um, But we did also take the step of like, you know, printing out a prototype early and then taking it to conventions and then testing in person as Mm -hmm. well, because I will tell you the the amount of adjustments we had to make after taking it physical and testing that user experience out in person, um, you know, it's just invaluable. And we've, and you kind of refine the physical product in that way, uh, just through a ton of uh, user testing feedback. And then um, after that, it's like, it's just, it's production, right? You're you're producing the art, you're working with the illustration team, you're working on the narrative, all the same things you would do on a video game, but you don't have that step of the software and figure out the infrastructure and then waiting for the tools engineer to do that one thing. So you can do that one change to this particular level, right? So in many ways you can skip those steps and and skip to just producing and testing, uh, which is great and very freeing. And then after that, it, it just becomes a lot of grip, graphic design and product design. Like, uh, you, you have to think about your product in 3d space. What does it look like on a shelf? These are, these are skill sets that we used to do back in the guitar hero day when like, you know, our, our games were in shelves, like Best Buy or GameStop. Um, I mean, I'm sure that people still buy games that in those ways, but like so much of it has shifted to digital that I don't, I feel like most of the industry doesn't think about it anymore. Uh, but it used to be very common for video games too. But, um, but right now I just, you know, it's, it's my world because it's physical product, but you think about packaging, the opening uh, box opening experience, you think about the retailer relationships that you're building, and hobby shops are so much different than your, your mass market or your big box retailers. Um, so you think about all those things, You uh, a lot of different, you're dealing with a lot more partnerships because there's a lot more people in the the value chain kind of interacting with it. So it's just like, I found that it like exercised a lot of different muscles that I hadn't done in a long time, like ranging from like product design and stuff like that to you know, just having to do a lot more, more deals and partnerships um, in order to get the product out.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I totally forgot about the box opening process. I mean, even um, for, for card pack opening, you think about the magic of opening ca- um, card packs. I guess it's, you know, I forgot for, for board games. Yeah, it's how, it's how the box looks. It's how it looks on the shelf. What's alluring when you go into um, like, a, you know, a small board game store on the side of a corner of a street in like San Francisco. And you, what makes you pick that up versus not pick, pick up something else? Um, and that's a totally mm-hmm. different skill. And sounds like from the Guitar Hero days, you actually have a ton of experience building something that's more of like a hardware, physical component side with, with married with with the game and so with kinfire chronicles and incredible dream studios um sorry just to rewind kinfire chronicles i believe is your first co-op board game right how are you guys how did you guys think about designing that board game taking it from tabletop and and to and to what it is today and maybe you can give our audience maybe a summary in, of exactly what kinfire chronicles is
2: So, um, Campfire Chronicles Night's Fall is a cooperative campaign game designed for one to four players. Um, It's it's got a lot of different parts. You know, there's a little bit of story. There's a a little bit of exploration. Um, There's some combat, card-based combat in there. Um, The game's designed by Kevin Wilson, who's uh, one of my personal favorite designers. He's uh, worked on a ton of things like Arkham Horror Descent um, and then also Cosmic Encounters, which was a personal favorite um, but yeah, I mean like our, it's also our first I, original IP that we've developed mm-hmm. as a studio and we worked with Matt and Kuba who were a creative pair that worked on the Witcher three together, um, as well as cyberpunk. Um, so we, we worked with them to kind of develop the world of kinfire, uh, mm-hmm. which we wanted to feel, uh, you know, fantasy is one of the biggest genres out there as far as IPs go. So we wanted to develop something in, in the fantasy genre, but we wanted to, to get away from just like, you know, another Lord of the Rings kind of derivative feeling Western fantasy. Um, and so we, we were trying to develop something that would feel fresh to us, but still have a lot of those familiar pieces. Like, you know, everybody's kind of familiar with an elf or like a dwarf and those concepts. And we've, we've done some work to kind of put our own spin to those tropes to kind of, uh, offer a different experience. Um, but yeah, so Kimfar is our first IP. Um, You know, we also launched a a Webtoon comic along with it, um, and we're working on other kind of product lines within it, as well as other IP products as well. And, uh, you know, I think this leads back to what is Incredible Dream Studio. I think more than just a board game studio, we are here incubating the next generation of entertainment franchises, right? So, like, Marvel came from comic books. Hello Kitty came from coin purses. IP can be developed from almost anything Um, you know, and for us, we're, we're doing our product market fit testing through board games, essentially. Um, and our approach is really like how I think about it is like, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is, is build and incubate new fan communities through, uh, faster creative mediums like board games. Right. It's like, um, you know, as for all the things that we, we said before, like, you know, I can, I have more shots on goal just with the different cost and timing dynamics, um, but it's also that board games, I think from a consumer perspective and, and in terms of nurturing and building new fan communities has a lot of strengths. Um, you know, I think we're, we're, even though we're leveraging digital, like playtesting on Tabletopia and stuff like that, and even like demoing through digital and we're on social media platforms and all that stuff. At the end of the day, we're really drawing people together in person, right? Off their screens. And uh, from what I found, I feel like in person in general is more engaging, um it's also more memorable it's a lot less toxic which i think are yeah. all qualities that we need and want these days um and it's harder to do so it naturally creates a, a moat right like um i think the reason why you see so many uh like new games coming out every day i think there's something like 10,000 games uh, apps mobile games coming out uh, like every week um is because it's it's a lot simpler to do. Whereas what we're doing, like trying to get people to meet up in person, is quite hard. But once you can do it, the investment into that IP and that experience is so much higher.
1: Got it. Okay, so to summarize, um, incredible dream is um, you have a you're building a board game uh, called Kinfire Chronicles, this co-op mm-hmm. campaign, um, and then but afterwards you sort of plan to leverage the physical IP and the fan base maybe built around your tabletop game to potentially create. Video games or some other media along the line. So you gave that example of uh, Marvel starting with comics, Hello Kitty starting with physical toys, and that's sort of maybe like the um, the larger ambition of the studio. Though you're starting with with, with product number one, um, can fire Chronicles, is that relatively accurate?
2: Yeah, uh, totally on the head. And like you know, I could go on with examples like Her- Wizarding War World starting from like novels and books and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. like for me, it's like you can start almost a- anywhere. Um, since I understand the gaming audience better, like, you know, board games seem like a natural fit and it was physical, a, a thing that I really liked about it. Um, but ultimately I think with success, like if we can cultivate this audience and fan communities, I think you can take an IP anywhere. Got it. Yeah, and I think
1: like also like this is a great segue to 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 ask some of like the broader, more strategic questions about the business models of board games and the implications of starting physical versus starting digital. Mm-hmm. Um, I read an article the other day uh, called um, "Do Digital Board Games Outsell Their Tabletop Counterparts?" and the author was essentially arguing that board game makers they they typically will license several games to digital developers, and overall, like the author actually stated that counter to one's intuition. Um, based on the analysis that they had done, um, they were not making digital counterparts of the physical games to drive physical unit sales, but rather to help people learn the rules because you can learn easier online than via a paper rulebook. You can play the game more often because it's faster to set up and you can play with strangers and friends all around the world and allow for like easier data collection and analysis like in like the digital scape. So you could link into Tableau and and Snowflake and you can collect this sort of play data. Mm -hmm. Um, They looked at, Games like Charterstone, Scythe, Viticulture, um, and Wingspan, and, and then the conclusion was kind of that digital games are like not outselling their physical counterparts. Um, that's actually like kind of contrary to maybe like the initial supposition that um, people want to play in person and that it's um, once you can get people over the friction of coming together, they that they retain. Sort of, what's your reaction maybe to to that um, uh, uh, aberration by that specific artist? I'm author. Sorry.
2: Yeah, no, I think those are all really great points. And at the end of the day, like we're all de- digital natives, right? Like I think we're we're used to digital uh, in terms of connecting with with frankly strangers off the internet to go do random things together. Um, there's a number of things that um, you know digital does for us, like the AI calculations behind a rules move, and like helping to like set up the game faster because like you know it's just you know you just click a button and it just generates, right? Um, so there definitely are um, advantages to digital as a medium. Um, I still think, well, I think the thing too is also when you look at a lot of those um, digital versions of board games, they're not actually they're not video games, right? Like so I think the comparison to video games is off. They're really digital simulations of a physical product. Mm. right? So there's like even from an experience uh, perspective, like uh, it's like VR. like you're not like you're not actually playing a video game in in certain VR setups. You're actually just like, you know, if you're playing chess and VR, you're, you're simulating a chess game with simulated uh, physical assets in a kind of 3D virtual world. Um, I think many of us wouldn't consider that a video game in of itself, right? Mm. Um, so I think like, you know, that, that comparison is kind of wonky too. And, and my personal belief like for the IP that we're generating is like I wouldn't want to just do simulated board games. We're already doing that with Tabletopia. Um, you know, I think the hope is, is like once you kind of incubate the right IP, you take that and you adapt it to a different medium, like we did with like League of Legends and Arcane. Arcane is not League of Legends, the the TV show. Like nobody would want to watch that; <laughs> it's a little bit too deep. Uh, you know, Arcane is its own kind of expression of the IP universe, and I look at video games in the same way there.
1: Yeah, I mean, what do you? But, but for for League of Legends, uh, you could definitely <laughs> you already have the Twitch streaming categories for that. So Tyler One is is League of Legends TV show, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. But yeah, I think those are those two components, right? There's a distinctful of like I'm recording you playing something versus taking something and um, ideating and making an entirely new creative medium out of it. And I think like that's actually a great a great distinction. I'm glad you brought that up between what is a video game and what's a um, full AI digital version of the board game, um, mm-hmm. which is like where the AI knows the rules of the game. So that, like when you at- decide to attack a player, the computer knows. Um, yeah. Actually, I have so many fond memories of a non AI digital version of Yu-Gi-Oh, um, on, a, it was called the dueling network. I don't know if you've ever come across this, but it was the greatest website ever. Basically you got all the cards for free. You just had to like obey the ban and restriction rules of like not having three pot of greeds in your deck. But like, there was no AI that like actually restricted you from having it. It was <laughs> just like all on the community to like, be like, you got three cards, you've got three pots of greeds in your deck and like I just attacked you for 2,000 life points, like you should really reduce your life point counter. So it was very much like a board game mechanic except with strangers on the internet and so you were fighting in the chat all the time about like what the rules were. Um, and so I think like that's I think you got that and you've got the digital AI version, and then you've got a video game. And so there's like almost like this, like, categories of, of, of games.
2: Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and like, I, I think like at the end of the day, I think digital digital versions of board games are, are useful for all the reasons that the author points out, right? Like mm-hmm. it is a easier way in an ice, you know, if you're trying to learn the rules, it's easier to do that in a digital setting um, where like the way you kind of learn the rules can be kind of paced out differently and all that stuff. Um, and it's also like, yeah, if, if you can't meet in person, having the opportunity to be like, hey, let's, let's play that game we normally play in person online. Like, I think these are all advantages, but I think time and time again, like even playing Catan online versus like in person, like in person is so much better. It's because mm-hmm. of the house rules that you're kind of describing. Like when we play at my house, like we may adjust or play with the rules a little bit mm-hmm. or, you know, and stuff like that. And like, there's something you can't replace about like personal presence, like, like being with somebody at the same table, eating the same food and drink, like you know, dealing with the same ambiance, like you, it's a dramatically, it's well dramatic, but it's a very different experience and a richer experience, uh, which is why I, th- I find that people still, when given the option, all things equal, will prefer the in-person experience. I see,
1: got it. I mean, that makes a, t- a, a ton, a ton of sense, and I know that I've personally enjoyed a lot of board game setups with with my family and my friends in person. And also just like sometimes sort of deciding the rules for yourselves when they're confusing. There's definitely been like, well, like, does the damage happen after the, like, does the damage step happen after the action or does it happen before? And then like in the way that you guys play the board game, it's almost like you're creating your own UGC rules around the construct of how the, of how the game is played. And sometimes you just ignore rules that are inconveniently hard. And so you're like, well, we'll just toss that out the window, and we're just only going to play this way. So I think you're, you're totally right in, in calling out that there's a lot of creativity in how you construct the board game for yourself. Um, But in that, I think, you know, you're, you're kind of averring that people will prefer the physical um, aggregation in person together. But I think there's also probably a good amount of friction on the adoption side, right? So I'm super unfamiliar right now with like, you know, what today, what do board games cost the consumer? And what's sort of the distribution strategy for those board games. I know we mentioned a couple minutes ago the idea of hobby shops, et cetera, but, um, you know, one could assume that it's a, you know, it's similar to the retail business and video games where you sell into a wholesaler like Walmart and GameStop, uh, you assume some sort of like sell through rate, you book contra revenues against that. And then your consumers go and buy this box. Right. Um, and the margins maybe on a box might be a lot lower than on, on, on the game. So, for the consumer side, how do you think about driving driving unit sales and getting this, getting games into the households of the people so they can have that physical um, experience?
2: Yeah, a great question. I think for us, um, you know, first of all, I think because uh, we have, I, I don't know, we have as a team some unique um, advantages that I think help us to, to look at this space in a unique way, which is that like you know, of course it's my team. So I'm going to brag that like, I, I think I have the best team in the industry naturally I put it together. Um, but, you know, we have, we have a a really unique executive team, uh, all award-winning executives, like coming from places like Riot or Netflix or CD Projekt Red and places like that. So like, um, you know, and we've have an amazing network of advisors um, and personal networks and also investors that kind of give us opportunities. I think a lot of new board game companies starting out uh, don't have the opportunity to kind of capitalize on. So um, you know, so much of a retail and physical business is about relationships and just sort of that kind of networking, and um, you know, you know, being interesting. I think to answer your question about like how do we drive consumers to go and buy this, um, I think that's where like having some added capital helps because we can be more strategic and think more bigger picture. Like we're not like constantly uh, trying to just min max the immediate profit. We can think about things like, hey, at the end of the day, like driving bigger reach towards our product is more relevant. And when you think about board games, the dynamics of board games versus video games, with video games, everybody's downloading a file onto the computer. A lot of the models are free to play, so not everyone's paying money necessarily. It's kind of similar with board games where, um, if let's say the average table is four, four people at the table, only one of those people have bought that board game, and it's a lifetime totally. purchase. It's you know They can replay that as many times as they want, and they're not going to spend additional funds. Um, but for that one person that bothered buying the board game, you have to kind of get into the psychology of why did they buy it? And like, what are they hoping to do? And what are they, you know, they bought the game with the hope of playing with other friends, right? Like, I, I, um, one thing that I think is fascinating is like two out of every three game board game played is played with other people, right? So you, after you sell that first initial unit, you have this evangelist who's now incentivized because they paid. What is it, $60, $80, maybe even up to $250 if you're buying Frosthaven? But they paid a lot of money investing in this product. And now they're going to go evangelize that because naturally they want to get some ROI out of it. They want to like convince their friends to go play. So now you have this army of people that have invested into your experience that are going out there and convincing their friends to come over Mm -hmm. and invest in that experience too. Um, And to a point you brought up earlier, it's kind of tough because like there's no Tableau link, you can't like measure sort of that level of engagement afterwards. Um, but so like our, our philosophy has been like, let's help that board game player, that whale, if you will, that purchase the experience, let's help them market the experience to their friends, right? Like, and what are those things that make it easier to convince people to play with you? I think, you know, having a recognizable IP definitely helps. Um, having, uh, making, and when you're developing original IP in the space, it's like, how do you make the IP accessible to people that haven't bought the game? Because again, like it's it's kind of hard convincing people to play your game if they're not even buying it in the first place. So we've done things like um, extensive social media. We're doing things like webcomic where we where put out a world Bible and world anvil. So, and we use a lot of digital to kind of increase that exposure to our IP, help people get familiar with our world. And, you know, the ROI on that is not great because like, you know, we're not monetizing in a lot of those places, most of the spaces. Mm. Um, but again, the idea is like, we're all making that board game purchaser's job a little bit easier because now you know chances are higher that more people have heard about Kinfire, maybe interested in playing it. So that makes the job a little bit easier. And then from a product design standpoint, too, we thought long and hard about like, okay, why don't a lot of board games get played? Like the the core hobby board games, and it tends to be that like you know setup is very long and learning the rules is very long because it's it's just a ton of friction. Um, like some games, like. I've sat down and tried to read the rule book. Couldn't get there. I went to a conference to get taught how to play the, the board game. And it took like 90 minutes and I got there, but not confident enough to set it up by myself. Um, but like, you know, and then like, you know, to even go play that game in person would take me 90 minutes just to lay out the board, set things up, uh, map A2 to B3 and all, like all this stuff. And like, if you think about trying to convince people to interact with your your brand and franchise repeatedly, I'm not going to do that if the setup and learning takes me three hours. Like me personally, there are people that will. Um, And so that starts to narrow your audience. And so for a lot of the games that we're designing, we're trying to think about like, not about making them easier, but just making those aspects more accessible, like quicker setup and quicker cleanup, Um, you know, more straightforward rules. How do we pace out the rules so that you can learn as you go versus having to sit down with a massive Bible and encyclopedia and reading through it?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's exactly actually the, um, I forget what it's, if it's the acronym, it's like NUI or whatever, like new user experience. Um, and uh, it's it's basically what you're describing to me sounds exactly like the spectrum of hardcore Elden Ring versus very easy to access Candy Crush. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you're you're also dealing with that same dynamic where you've got a a ton of hardcore board game players who are willing to drop like a million pieces and stack them all in a row and play this and learn this really complicated, like fat rule book. And then you have the people that kind of just want to play um apples to apples and think there's serving a board game. There's a board game probably for everybody in that in that range. And you guys seem like you're squarely kind of you want to make that co-op campaign, but you want to sort of simplify it a little bit so it's not like overly burdensome on the on the consumer themselves. And I'm super glad that you mentioned actually using digital to reinforce physical. I was going to ask you like, you know, what role do you think Twitch and YouTube have in this last mile distribution of board games? And is it as puissant an impact? as it is with video games. You know, I noticed online that Kinfire has playthroughs online. They've got shoutcasting and segmenting similar to Critical Role. Um, is that, and, and obviously we know about how Valorant and Apex really heavily utilize Twitch as part of their marketing campaigns and distribution. Do mm-hmm. you think that's the best core practice for board games? And does do you think it applies to all board games or only maybe the D&D type, um, like that Critical Role has made popular?
2: I think there's a, a big opportunity in terms of more board game streaming uh, because I do think it's it's fascinating because like again you're dealing with physicality and I think for the streamer what's interesting is like a lot more emphasis is on you versus the digital screen and kind of what the digital avatar is going through, uh, which I mean maybe not for every every like creator's uh, wheelhouse or anything or things that they want, but. I think it kind of presents a different kind of video conf- content for viewers to watch, even, right? Because you get to see a lot more of the creator, less of the like actual digital video game in that way. Um, but yeah, I think like for YouTube and Twitch, um, yeah, I do, I do believe there's a big opportunity for that, especially as many people try to learn how to play a, a board game by watching a video. Um, there's actually a, a pretty large community of content creators just in the board game space who specialize in things like explainer videos and playthrough videos um and reviews and stuff like that to help people learn and i i've i feel like i've seen um kind of a big growth in this especially through the pandemic as you know both interest in purchasing board games had grown but also like less people were able to make it out to their friendly local game store where like in the past like a lot of that burden was on that that sales rep at the game store who would you know kind of like a bartender and know what you like drinking and then kind of figure out like, okay, you're into like whiskey. Let me offer you some old fashions. And here's a nice one with a nice aged bourbon that we hand hand kind of like aged. And, you know, it's just like, that's the kind of relationship you, you usually have with a, a game store owner. Um, and I do see some of that coming back and I see the digital stuff, uh, the streaming staying uh, because I think, again, we're all digital natives. We're used to having this, the access to this content. So I do think that more board game companies can Go to digital. It's not a, a must yet. I think if you have strong retailer relationships with those hobby shops, um, it's not like a must, but, but yeah.
1: Got it. And do you think that that is actually also an added dimension of a revenue driver for 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 a potential revenue driver for board games? I know that you had mentioned that uh, it's not necessarily like an ROI positive investment because you're driving people from the digital itself to the physical. So it's more basically like digital. That kind of like streaming or Twitch Twitch show is actually more of like a um, an acquisition cost, and then you're basically looking whether or not your your CAC is offset by your LTV. But I think like in my mind, the immediate revenue drivers for board games that pop up are licensing, obviously physical sales, maybe some sort of like franchising alternatives, basically what you guys are talking about doing, which would be taking your board game IP, making it into a TV show, making it into a video game. And then maybe also like there's some sort of a digital revenue stream of Twitch drops and stuff like that. Um, how do you see like those drivers, at least for, for, for Kinfire and an Incredible Dream?
2: I think because we are a IP de, uh, development kind of, uh, I view us as as creating IPs less so much a, any particular expression of it, right? Mm-hmm. And with the hope that we kind of continue building out our original IP catalog, as well as the different product lines and extensions that we have within it. Um, today, we're starting with board games, and hopefully that goes into more. Um, so because of that, the way I look at it, like, I look at it more as like in terms of asset value, right? Like... All these different expressions that we're creating, even if we're not generating direct revenue off of it, like I think it adds into the overall app brand asset value. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I'm paying more attention to is just like, you know, look at the acquisitions that have gone over IPs in the recent years, right? Like, um, like MGM was acquired by Amazon Studios. That was like an $8.5 billion purchase, right? And so that's a purchase of assets. It's not so much a purchase of the teams, right? Uh, You can look at other models like, you know, how much did Disney acquire Marvel or Star Wars for? I think those were about $4 billion each, right? And again, yes, people were involved, but largely that was for the library, the assets that they were purchasing. Um, And I think an interesting point point to be made is like, you know, Embracer, you mentioned them earlier, they acquired Asmodee for something like $3 billion. They, you know, more of your listeners may be interested. Uh, familiar with Crystal Dynamics who's done T- Tomb Raider among other like more known like video game franchises, um, Asmodee has a huge portfolio. Embracer bought um, uh, Asmodee for $3 billion. They bought um, uh, Crystal Dynamics for something like $300 million, right? So just think about like that differential. It's kind of interesting when you sit back and think about it. And arguably a lot of what Embracer was buying with Asmodee is, is their portfolio, their catalog of IP. You know, and you know, I think that that kind of changes your perspective on like, you know, how does one kind of generate uh, more value in board games?
1: Got it. And you mentioned some differentials between the financial outcomes: the three hundred million for Crystal Dynamics, the three billion for Asmody. Um, I'm curious about the maybe challenges. Um, or process of raising money to, to fund a board game studio, given like these financial outcomes that you just mentioned. I think Asmodee is probably one of the um, maybe I, I'm a little bit naive on the space, but it's probably one of the few board game type acquisitions we've heard about for such a big check size. And so for Incredible Dreams, sort of like what are the ambitions there, and also what was the process of kind of encountering um, challenges and fundraising. Either from venture or from Kickstarter, I think you did a Kickstarter campaign, and when you're building a board game, because you know you obviously have that fatter, mar- um, sorry that a fatter margin, um, or sorry, lower margin, um, because of the cogs and, and the significant uh, physical side of board games.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Raising money was challenging for sure. Uh, also this market really sucks. So anybody raising right now, my heart goes out to you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I would say, um, a, a lot of it came down to education, right? Because we didn't fit the mold of like what was on trend to invest in at the time. I think at the time I, you know, it was web three NFT. I literally had investors saying to me like Jane, uh, we're going to decline, but if you had just said web three, we would have been in. I'm like. Okay. You know, it was, was (laughs) you know, we were just not the mold. And so we had to look for investors that like, you know, understood media, understood like asset value and like could, could get behind the vision that we had for the company. Um, And, you know, it just was education after that, right? Like uh, you mentioned, there's not too many acquisitions. A lot of people keep that information private into the chest because these are private companies being sold into other private companies for the most part. And also board games can be so lucrative, like you know, why would you give it up? You're kind of just, you know, once you have a monopoly every time and you know that retailers will want like hundreds of thousands of units, you know, over a given period of time, you know, it's just math. Then you're just planning, okay, I'll print out this many copies. I will sell it in this quarter. And it's just the cost of printing. And so the margins on an evergreen product like that gets super good because you're not Unlike a live service game, you're not paying the live ops team, you're not paying for infra ongoing, Mm, mm -hmm. you know, your ongoing margins on Evergreen are really attractive, right? So like, there's, there's no reason to sell. But um, again, it it goes down to education, though, because like, Call of Duty, League of Legends, these are $1 billion revenue per year uh, products, right? And IP franchises. Uh, when you look at Wizards of the Coast, which is a subsidiary of Hasbro, they're $1 billion revenue, right? And so, like, the, the board game companies actually do get as big as, as video game companies. It's just a matter of how you're building it.
1: I got it. I actually, like, that's really interesting. I've always been, like, kind of under the presumption that the margin is smaller, um, that the gross profit margin for board games has had to be smaller just based on, like, my physical my experience in the video game side for retail, which was always less than digital, uh, just mm-hmm. because of the cogs. But obviously, across those two, the live ops teams are still the same, right? Whether or not you pick it up as a disc and um, GameStop, or you download it directly from BattleNet, um, you still have the live ops team doing live doing the servers and the, your your entire um, uh, server engineer server engineering team, and your as you said, your your tools guy. And and so it's actually really interesting to hear your position on the evergreen franchising in board games being oh yeah, you just print it and then you just sell it to a retailer. And obviously you're, some retailers taking some sort of percentage cut, um, but it can actually be pretty lucrative. Um, so that's actually, thank you for sort of correcting my my stereotype of physical, <laughs> of physical brick and mortar. And actually it's funny that you mentioned which is of the coast because... I know that for a lot of video games that maybe go physical and build board games, that that's, that's a licensing model, right? Where you're going to say like, okay, Hey Hasbro or Hey Lego or Hey, whoever else Asmodee, will you make me a board game off of this IP that's maybe already uh, an uncharted, a witcher, et cetera, make me Gwen. I don't know. Um, And what are your thoughts kind of on the recent wizards of the um, coast, like sort of license OGL debacle. Um, And so for the audience in our, who doesn't, doesn't know a few months ago, The D&D publisher, which is Wizards of the Coast, tried to change its existing um, OGL, which stands for their Open Game License, that was created in 2000. Um, This is a public copyright that allowed tabletop role-playing game developers to modify, copy, and redistribute content design for D&D games. And the changes would basically make the previous versions unauthorized and introduce rules that for anyone earning money from the games that they used the OGL for would need to report those earnings back to Wizard. And so this caused a massive kerfuffle. Wizards basically retracted their changes and said that they'd work with the community to come up with something better. And um, I'm not up to date exactly on what they've decided, but one could suppose that the decision was made under the context of shows like Critical Role and Stranger Things um exhorting a surge in popularity for D and wizards probably being a little butthurt about missing out on licensing revenues that they could have been accretive to their bottom line um since you're a board game expert sort of like what's happening here and do you see this as a for, uh, potential problem maybe incredible dream might have to tango with
2: oh spicy question <laughs> 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 super spicy um yeah, and uh, you know, I will admit to to you and your audience, like I'm going to take a generous view on this because, uh, you know, I feel like I can I can see sort of maybe the decisions that Wizards might have been up against, and again, it's all speculation. Like i you know, this is observation, speculation, and taking a generous view on Wizards of the Coast and what they were trying to do. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, I think um, I, when you own an IP asset, um, you know, I think you have to be very thoughtful about how you are protecting that asset. Um, you know, there's, there's whole businesses that go into, there's agencies that for any given product will just scour Amazon, making sure that they catch any fraudulent product versions of yours and then request takedowns. And, you know, it may seem like, Oh, why are you squabbling over like this random person in some other part of the world, making a little, a quick buck off of your product uh, for a major IP, they have to take that stuff seriously, seriously, because, you know, if you're trying to sell like a, a League of Legends plushie, for example, and somebody else on um, that's mm-hmm. official and licensed, and then somebody else is online, like so trying to sell Hawk the same thing for or similar thing for like one tenth of your cost, And like you're it's pushing it's putting pressure on your products down. Um, it's also, you know, when you try to license that that IP to someone else, they see that other, other people are hawking it, so they're not willing to pay as much for that um, same license and stuff like that. So, like, um, that's not to say that that's what was happening to Wizards of the Coast, but like, I think in general, when you're managing an IP asset, you have to be very thoughtful about those those aspects of it, um, and pay attention to those things because it is it is the value of your asset, the desire of people to want to use it, the desire of people to want to buy it, and, and so you have to manage and curate that over time. So I think with Wizards, what was probably happening is like, you know, I think they're they're doing fine on a revenue and profit thing. I don't think like my my general my generous view on them is like I don't think that they were really. Necessarily trying to squeeze every last dime over the community members that were making money off of the Wizard's properties, I think more or less it was because they they had greater ambitions with the franchises that they're working on, as evidenced by the wonderful movie that came out. Really enjoyed it, um, and you know I think it I can only imagine that having those conversations with Hollywood studios or other potential licensees, um, it gets tough to kind of justify a hard a bigger like license um, for it because they, there's so many other creators out there building off of your IP that is sort of like, okay, well, you know, what what story am I going to tell that someone over there isn't already telling and publishing yeah. on YouTube, right? So it's a, it can be a little bit of a conundrum. And, you know, I think some of the reasons that they had cited in their posts, to the community was just reasons around like, you know, there are some bad actors out there where if you freely give out your IP, they will do things that you don't want them to do with it. And, you know, how do you protect the community from those bad actors and the content that gets put out that way? So I think there are a lot of like, good, like good for the community reasons for wizards to want to try and do this. Cause again, by being able to license to bigger, bigger studios and stuff like that, they can bring out these bigger, more cooler, like audience experiences for the community, which I think we all want. Um, but it feels bad for, for the people that were affected by the OGL, you know, you know, so I think like, yeah, it's, it's tricky. Um, and I, you know, uh, in my personal view, I think the OGL was a, a factor in in wizard's early success i think that wizard did a lot of things that was very community centric like organizing play groups for magic and stuff like that that like you know a lot of other publishers weren't doing but it was that early commitment and dedication to community that helped them grow and got a lot of people bought into them um so you know i think it's it's hard they're kind of in a weird spot in their growth and that trade-off was hard i think implications for incredible dream it's like you know, we're, we're still trying to figure out the right balance, right? Like we're, I looked at a lot at what Wizards was doing and trying to figure out what is the right call here because I appreciate the ability of communities to build their own content over it, like to feel ownership within the IP and um, really want to engage in it that way. You really want to unlock that as a, as a young IP. Um, so the question is just like, how do you navigate this over time so that when you are in a place to be able to take the IP to bigger places, you're not kind of hamstrung um, by these uh, things that, that suddenly become suboptimal I see
1: yeah it's a, it's definitely a tricky a tricky... Uh, a tricky- um, kind of tightrope to, to straddle because I think obviously the beauty of DD is the collectivism and the UGC component of making up your own rules. And at the same time, though, you know if you wanted to do something stronger with the franchise, which I think you actually I might I might ask you about um, next, is you know you have to have some sort of control or guardrails around how that IP gets used, what stories you're telling, what is canon, what's not canon. And you can't control that if you have this massive sprawling license. Um, and so I, I totally hear you on the the torn because you know there's like probably some members in the community who are like we would want more protection. We want it to be like a little bit more confined. And there's other members in the community who are like, well, like I built this story. I built this game, and mine's really popular in this like section of North America somewhere. I have like a rapid fan base in this random town. Um, and so now actually like you're kind of messing up the, this business that I that I built off of this. Yeah. Um, and so. You know, I'm actually, this is a great segue into sort of asking, you know, you've done work in PC and AAA and um, your gaming services at Riot and their incredible expansion of their IP over the past few years into other video games, into other, sorry, other genres. Um, so LOR and some of even the narrative games that were made by like Airship Syndicate, as well as the new IP and Valorant. Could you sort of shade um, some of your current work under the willow tree of, um? the role of franchising um, from the past experience that you've had at tri- in AAA? Is there something that you think AAA should be doing more in board games than what they're doing right now?
2: Oh, thank you for the question. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I think, like, to me, it was a, like, for a lot of the reasons why I got attracted to building a startup in board gaming. I think that there's similar reasons why it ought to be more attractive to AAA video game companies out there. Who, by the way, I think, Okay, just to take you on an aside right now, like I feel like um, I've always been fascinated by kind of this question of like you know if you look at this chart of the top grossing IPs out there, right? Like you'll have like Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Batman, uh, the Call of Duty, Pokemon, all this stuff. Like the ones at the top are these consumer product brands, and when you look at how their revenue is divided, like you know, yeah, video games is a sliver, but like you know, a, a, a significant chunk is consumer products, is board games, is these other is tv films and whatever when you look at something like a call of duty it's like 99.9 percent of it is just video games you know that revenue chunk and there's like a tiny sliver is anything outside of that so i always scratch my head like is it like aaa companies are just leaving a ton on the table why why aren't they kind of looking if other companies are kind of like you know seeing 60 percent of their revenues coming in from anything other than digital like why aren't video game companies looking into these other forms um, and it kind of made me realize that for, for video game companies, it's like, um, they're they they have a lot more advantages in sort of like post hype. Whereas a lot of these other franchises, it's more, uh, advantages in pre-hype. Like, you know, when a movie launch launches, you want to line up, um, all the consumer products, all these other expressions of it to kind of lead up to that box open. Um, and then, so that's like pre-hype that you're building in. And so a lot of those partnerships come into play. And then like, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats, everybody kind of benefits from that one moment. I think with board games, there's so much investment to even just build that community in the first place. Um, And you don't even know what the product is like months out, That like you you don't even, you can't even plan 18 months in in advance to partner with so many people. Um, So you really have to work with an audience once you have it. And so it's really post the hype that you're kind of driving. It's less about hyping to a moment. It's more about like fan engagement. So that brings me back to why should AAA care about things like board games and stuff. I think, you know, I, I think the number one argument against doing anything other than video games for a studio is like, Oh, it's a rounding error. Right. It's that, that common uh, comment of like, Oh, you know, I make a hundred million dollars in a month. Like, why do I need this little board game? That's going to make like sub that. Right. Mm-hmm. Or do anything outside of video games. Um, yeah. right. And, it's a and of
1: focus. Yeah. It's a
2: question of focus. And like, I think because of the pre post hype difference that I was kind of describing, um, when you're post hyping something, you're really more about engaging your fan base in like, you know, you have a loyal following already. There's a lot more to disappoint there when you're pre-hyping something, no one knows what you're about to give them. So it could be anything like, is anyone going to get upset about a aid for an IP that they don't know about? Not really. Are, are gamers going to get upset about a band aid about their favorite character in the game that they're playing? Maybe. And so I think like, um, video game companies are more hyper aware to those differences, but, um, but I think at the end of the day, for them, it's a lot more about post-type, which is a lot more about loyalty and fan engagement and offering their existing fans new ways to kind of engage with the IP. Um, I think, like, yeah, you can you can do that digitally. You can keep offering new digital offerings to kind of vary it up or new packs or whatever. But I think, like, it's um, true fandom begins when people bring that into their real lives and their personal lives, right? Like, it's when they, they feel like they can own a piece of it on their table um, or when they can talk about it with their friends. Um, It was part of the magic that we saw in uh, League of Legends uh, with Arcane, just to share a quick beautiful story. But like, I remember when we screened it for the first time, uh, you know, somebody had walked up to me and told me how like, you know, I finally get it. I get why my brother loved this this franchise so much, right? And that person never played League, will never play League, right? But like, it was because we were able to express the IP in a different medium that it formed this connection point between a fan and their family and friends. Mm And that's what consumer products and board games and these other expressions outside of uh, video games can do. Um, and I think more more AAA studios should look at that because the ROI for them may not be in profits, but it is in, in engagement and reach.
1: Mm, yeah, that's a really powerful example. And um, I think that that's happened with a lot of... Um... Franchises, even uh, I actually didn't play The Witcher, which is now one of my favorite games, until The Witcher show came out, and I was like, "Oh, I kind of like this universe. Let me give this a go." And I think maybe I'm on the rare side, and you know, I already have video game aptitude. Definitely, my mom, who watched, who also loved League of Legends, Arcane, is definitely not going to Summoner's <laughs> Rift. She literally cannot like jump out of a window, even in like something like becoming Detroit, becoming human. She like, which is the slowest game. Ever, so she's like you know mechanically challenged in terms of what she can do because of just how she grew up um, with what games she played. But I think it is there's some point to and the underutilization of the physical realm for digital products like a Call of Duty or like League or. Overwatch or whatever. Um, and obviously, you know, there's sometimes you have your like CPG kind of clothing lines, but there's other questions about like what else could could you make? And even, I know that we, I don't want to go down the Web3 rabbit hole, but even in the Web3 world, there's a lot of digital um, NFTs that are basically allowing you to redeem physically backed tokens because that's how full circle Web3 has gone, <laughs> um, is that now we have NFTs that have PPTs? literal physical back tokens behind them. Um, But, you know, as a, as a concluding thought, you've mentioned, um, you know, the, the story with Arcane, you've accomplished a ton of your career and, uh, you know, you know, especially with the Emmy on our, on, for Arcane, can you share some lessons that you are, um, that you have taken from working at a behemoth like Riot and cross collaboration with an institution like Netflix on such a tectonic show like Arcane? What are two things on that project that you guys are using today at Incredible Dream or lessons?
2: Only two things. Wow.
1: <laughs> two things. Two things. We can Just only do two. two.
2: Okay. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I think the, the big lesson coming from AAA, and by the way, a lot of, uh, I've been in a lot of arguments with other founders that are like, all these ex-AAA studios getting made, like you don't even need it tri- Like AAA, it's meaningless, whatever. I disagree. I think, you know, you don't need it, sure, but like it does help coming in from having this experience. Uh, I know, Alex, you're also taking a similar journey. You're going from like AAA also to a smaller studio. I think you'll find like there's a lot of that experience that just helps you having seen, uh, you know, how the sausage is made, so to speak, and like what it looks like in success and like the challenges that you see. Like, yeah, a lot of those those um, problems and success you'll never see as a startup, right? But right. just knowing just how the the decision tree matrix, like where it can end up. I think is very informative in these early decisions and just helps me, has helped me make decisions faster and with more confidence, uh, Mm -hmm. ranging from hiring decisions all the way to staffing and then all the way to like, you know, IP management, like I just described. Like there's a lot of ways to mess up IP management early days by making the wrong kind of decisions. But like if you were at the end of that and saw all the mistakes and the problems and challenges of dealing with it, you can avoid some of that in the early part of the decision tree. Um, So yeah, I think like for me, it was largely just, you know seeing how it's made and seeing the complexities of what in success looks like that i've i've taken away a ton of lessons um i think the other lesson has really been like from arcane specifically like i think my lesson in that was like the worst thing you can do to a fan is embarrass them for their their fandom right mm. like you know and i think that that's what a lot of video game companies kind of that probably is what holds them back from doing um any kind of expression outside of their company which i still argue you need to get used to and do better um, but you know, I think like the worst thing you can do is disappoint a fan, and so like, you know, I think like understanding your audience is so important, and it's true for any startup, right? Like, for any startup, the number one thing you should be hyper focused on is finding your audience and nurturing the heck out of that relationship, and that is the most crucial relationship you will have, um, not just in the beginning but throughout your life. And so I think like, you know, Riot has always been a, a player first company. I've always really that was what attracted me to it in the first place. Um, and you know, I've always carried that lesson in my heart to like everything we're doing because I do think fans and players matter so much. Awesome.
1: Yeah. Thank you for those insights. I think those are incredibly valuable. And I love the idea of like the biggest thing, your biggest mistake could be disappointing a fan. And how do you build that that first like 100 customers, that golden cohort and that relationship? Um, Because those are the people that are really going to be your evangelists for the product for, for for years to for years to come and so um, Jane it was it was such a pleasure um, and thank you for giving us a brief glimmer into the world and business of board games um, as always I've learned a lot and I'm sure that our audience has too um, if there are folks in the audience that are interested in credible dream how can they get in touch with you in your studio
2: yeah sure uh, just go to kinfirechronicles.com, uh to check out the game uh, we have a pre-order discount happening now that's going to expire in like a week or so um but you know the game's coming out in august so you can pre-order anytime or just buy direct once it's out as well you can also hopefully go to your local game store and, and find us or just ask about us too uh, that would be much appreciated and then to find out about the studio is just incredibledream.com um or just find me on linkedin maybe i shouldn't offer that but yeah find me on linkedin uh always happy to help if i can
1: Awesome. Okay. And on on that note, uh, we'll be concluding. A big thank you again, Jane, for coming. Thanks to our listeners. I'll be back in two weeks. Until next time, friends, and feel free to hit me up at alexandra.novic.co. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, we'd love to hear your feedback. And with that, au revoir. See you next time.
0: If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novik.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Navic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.navic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, level up your insights with our premium research platform, Novic Pro, or contact us to learn about our wide ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.